Hey, Bob, how are you? I'm great, Tadis. Hey, I'm on the line with Robert Seawright, who is the Chief Investment Officer for Madison Avenue Securities, which is a uh, boutique bro- broker-dealer and investment advisory firm in San Diego, California. Uh, Bob also blogs at Above the Market, and I asked him on today to talk about a recent post of his entitled, How's Your Aim? So for Bob, this is a relatively lighthearted post, uh, but gets to a very important issue, namely the significance of having uh, well-established benchmarks in place uh, against which we can measure our investment performance. So uh, that's a good place to start, Bob. Was there a specific incident that inspired you to write this post? Uh, yeah, actually, it was a particularly disgusting incident in, a, at an, in an airport bathroom that was uh, so vile that that uh, it made a, an impression on me that I won't soon forget. And then shortly thereafter, uh, I was I was in a really upscale winery restaurant, and I saw um, a a fly decal uh, in the urinal to aim at, and that. That reminded me that I've I've been meaning to write this post for at least a couple of years, and so I between those two things I decided to do it. Well, it's funny because you know anybody who's blogged for any any amount of time knows that sometimes you just have ideas and they sort of uh, sit sort of in your subconscious for a while for a while and eventually they come out. And so uh, it was interesting to see this post in that regard. Well, I was initially going to write a longer one. Of course, it was me, and I write longer stuff mostly. Uh, and in fact, uh, when when your colleague Josh Brown uh, retweeted it earlier today, he he made a comment that uh, about how to choose your benchmark rather than the importance of having one. And the initial post I had ruminating was going to go in that direction and talk about, you know, having the right benchmark and, and arguments about which benchmark to use. Uh, but I, just, I decided to leave it short and um, direct rather than my usual uh, circuitous and extensive. Well, you know, it's interesting because I think you know, when it comes to benchmarks, you know, there is there are as many benchmarks as there are um, you know, indices out there, essentially, and, you know, almost an infinite combination. So how should an investor really think about putting together a benchmark for their portfolio? Or maybe I should maybe take this from the advisor perspective as well. What's the best way to think about putting a benchmark that is um, A, relevant, and B, not overly complicated? Uh, I, I tend to prefer uh, multiple benchmarks for different purposes and not to get too uh, wrapped up in how you're doing relative to the benchmark. Uh, uh, when I first thought of this post, uh, it related to a, a longer one I had done several years ago about uh, whether the uh, endowment investing phase uh, was past it, whether the trade was crowded and and. Uh, we, we'd be best to look in other directions. And I, I looked at the data, uh, which is still pretty accurate, uh, showing that, that the world of college endowments uh, underperformed a standard 60-40 portfolio over pretty much uh, every time span you want to look at, at least over the last 10 years or more. And when I had written that post, 
uh, I had talked about that and I got criticized in the comments, uh, someone saying, yeah, but that's not the right benchmark. You should, you know, benchmark against what, uh, what they actually own. Um, and so if it was, uh, 20% American equities, you, you ought to set a benchmark that's 20% the S and P instead of a standard 60, 40 benchmark. And strictly speaking, that's true. If, if you're trying to measure, how your investment choices have done relative to other investment choices in that category. But uh, endowments and pensions used a standard 60-40 portfolio for decades. And, and it's, it's also an appropriate benchmark to see, well, you've switched your investment style uh, to go in all these uh, uh, private equity hedge fund uh, directions. Uh, you ought to know if you'd kept it simple and straightforward the way you used to do it, um, how you had done in comparison. And so that's, that's two different ways to benchmark it. Uh, when uh, I'm old enough to remember when benchmarking was a pretty new thing, and mostly it was, it was a way to say, uh, gee, uh, this performed, you know, this investment uh, opportunity or history or whatever it is uh, had performed X, and you might want to know that you know standard equities or standard bonds had done Y, uh, just as a rough comparison, because of course uh, every every strategy and approach uh, underperforms sometimes, and it's not necessarily a negative uh, that that your favored strategy is behind some benchmark at any given time. And I think in our current culture, we have, we have raised the benchmarking standard a little too high so that now we're worried if we're uh, behind it at any point in the market cycle. And, and uh, I think that's, that's, too precise. Well, the, the other challenge that that I see today, and which is kind of a, a pet peeve of mine, is that oftentimes in the media, everything is compared to the S&P 500, whether it be uh, bonds, hedge funds, uh, equities, and every you know, and art for or, you know, for or, you know, yeah. everything in between. And you know, um, the S and P 500 is you know, is kind of a very specific sort of benchmark. And it just happens to be the case that the S and P 500 or large cap equities has essentially outperformed every other every other asset class essentially for the past decade. So uh, comparing anything to the S and P 500 uh, of late it was going to show um, you know uh, a you detriment. You weren't going to be happy. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, well, you know, you know, one of the things on your blog that you do a lot is you write a lot about behavioral finance. And I think, um, you know, uh, issues of benchmarking aside, one of the things in your post that you talked about is this idea of nudges. And so maybe can you, you know, uh, maybe talk about how uh, nudges come into play and, um, you know, um, especially especially when it comes to uh, the issues that you raised in the post. Sure. Uh, the the uh, decal in the urinal is is uh, the Nobel laureate Richard Thaler's favorite nudge, and um, he and Cass Sunstein uh, define them as uh, something that that a choice that alters people's behavior in a in a predictive way, but it doesn't uh, foreclose other options or or really change their incentives. So the idea is well. 
you know, any guy knows and any parent of boys knows that, that they're always going to aim. And, uh, whether it's, whether it's, uh, crossed swords in the snow or whatever it is, uh, that is just a fact of life. And um, a, uh, a Dutch airport experimented with, with, in their case, it wasn't decals. They actually etched flies in the urinals, and they found that, that the cleanliness of uh, the airport men's room uh, was dramatically better. And uh, so that was a really good, straightforward nudge to help people do better uh, because guys are going to see it and they're going to aim. And there are, they now, you know, have them with uh, golf flags. And my, my personal favorite is uh, the university of Louisville uh, in, in some of their uh, locker rooms have, have a decal of, of the university of Kentucky, their arch rival. So that, so Mm -hmm. the the Louisville folks can aim at UK which I think is pretty great. Well, let's let's hope we can find uh, more sort of benign nudges out there that uh, uh, do as much as a simple um, etching in a urinal can do. So, well, I want to, uh, Bob. I want to. Uh, we're gonna we're out of time, but I appreciate you coming on, and uh, we'll talk to you again soon. I'm glad to. Thank you, Tadas. I appreciate being here. Right. Thanks.